Allison and Rob have spent a lifetime cultivating and working towards an ancestral lifestyle that encompasses every aspect of their lives, not just the meals at the table. In this intimate episode, they sit down together on a very hot summer day to share some details of their lives and how they've shaped their days into a rhythmic, peaceful pattern that serves them the way they need it to. You probably already heard Rob in the episode, Why I Gave Away My iPhone, and Patreon listeners have also heard my interview with Rob talking about all things IT and screen. But you're also a fan of his music. If you've listened to any of our episodes, then you've heard his original music in the intro. So enjoy this interview between a husband and wife all about their ancestral lifestyle. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello and welcome back to Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. I am here with a guest today. Hello, Rob. Hi. Rob is my husband, full disclosure there. And because this is a kind of an August month where we're trying to bring you closer to us, um, we thought and Andrea asked if Rob and I might do an episode on our own. And we thought we would kind of lift the veil open the door and um, show you our life, show you more about how we eat, how we interact together, where we buy our food, the other routines we have, our health routines, um, our routines around computers and how we run our day with the idea that we're really trying to live ancestrally in the food that we're eating and we're trying to look back to traditions in the past and how humans were supposed to be living and bring parts of that into our life now to make our make ourselves happier and healthier. So Rob, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so in um, normal Ancestral Kitchen podcast tradition, what did you last eat? Okay, so it was, it was breakfast and it was a few hours ago. Um, my, I should explain, the breakfasts are the, they're the one meal that I really cobble together myself. It has nothing to do with Alison. So basically, it's nothing like the photos you see on Instagram. Um, it's just whatever's left in the fridge kind of bunged in a bowl and drenched in olive oil and maybe a teaspoon of honey on it or something like that. Um, and that, having said that, I tend to be quite picky about what we prepare that does get left in the fridge. So, for example, if there's some sorghum cooked in pork stock for example then that's usually really appetizing even two or three days after it was cooked um so on oh, this morning yeah this morning was literally that um and some salad just like leaves from our local market and some melon that um gabriel rejected saying it was too ripe so i've eaten all of that 
what else is there? Oh yeah, and there are a couple of pieces of pecorino, which is like um, sheep's cheese from our local market. And yeah, and with olive oil and some uh, honey on it. I think that was it. That was all nice. I had. Yeah, so your breakfasts are usually quite different from mine. Like Rob said, they're the, the one meal that we don't really prepare and sit and eat together. Rob tends to be responsible for his own breakfast. And this morning I had, just to show you the kind of contrast, I actually had um, a ready-made piadina. Piadina is a flat, unyeasted bread, which was made of farro. Not very often I eat ready-made um, baked goods, but it has been so, so hot here that I have struggled um, several times to put the oven on to cook bread. Um, usually when it's warm, I'm not bothered at all. It's warm, or fine, I put the oven on, but it has been unseasonably and ridiculously hot here. So we bought some kind of emergency pre-baked goods, and this morning I had one of those, which I heated up in the cast iron pan um, with some lard in there, so it kind of went crispy and soaked the lard in. And then I fried an egg from the same market where most of Rob's breakfast came from. And I had the end of the pecorino. I sliced a bit of that up. So when Rob goes there tomorrow, there's no pecorino <laughs> left until Thursday. So yeah, I had that with a glass of water kefir. I tend to not um, have much salad in the morning because I like to be able to have dense food that will give me some, some calories. And also as... Um, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that I don't eat much fruit, so I don't have fruit in the morning. Um, Gable's breakfast tends to be a bit more like Rob's, kind of the variety and leftovers on his plate. So, good start. <laughs> let's, let's try and move through the day in a kind of chronological order, because um, I think that will give the best picture of the kind of things that we do and maybe pop some kind of inspiration and curiosity in your own head and, yeah, hopefully encourage you to, um, to keep doing what you're doing. So let's, let's talk about sleep first. And we don't have normal beds. We haven't had normal beds oh, since, for a long time, since long before Gabriel, I think. And um, at the moment we sleep on tatami mats, which are Japanese reed woven mats which are about two inches high and on top of those we have futon mattresses so our beds are really really low and we've had those now for about three or four years before that we were sleeping on the floor (laughs) (laughs) which um, was heavily influenced by Katie Bowman who Andrew and I have both talked about on the podcast who um is basically talks about ancestral movement and how our bodies are supposed to move. And so before we bought the futons, we were literally sleeping on the floor with a folded duvet underneath us. Um, I've always had a pillow. You went for a while without a pillow, Rob, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. we, we gave up with sleeping um, on the floor. Yeah, I'm not necessarily recommending that to anyone. Yeah, so talk, in, about, in talk about why we slept on the floor <laughs> and why we changed and the whole pillow thing for you. I, I don't think we can entirely blame um, Katie Bowman no? for okay. that one. But I, I just, I distinctly remember when we first met. You were a little bit shocked when you came into my bedroom and saw that I had a, um, a futon on the floor that was. I think it was literally it was branded. It was called the Monk. It was called, <laughs> and it was like literally about two centimeters thick. 
and I used to sleep on that. I was going through quite a minimal phase. My bedroom was like um, that Beatles song about looking around and there wasn't a chair, you know, it really felt like that. But um, yeah, I just, for many years, I slept like that because partly because I'd spent a lot of time doing yoga and become a teacher and I'd been lying in Shavasana a lot and, and finding that that's corpse pose. Thank that's you. literally, that's lying on your back. And, and so sleeping like that seemed like quite a natural thing and I did I, I slept on my back what I found after many years of doing that was that I had serious difficulty keeping my head pointing sort of facing upwards what would happen is my my neck would kind of collapse over and it, it's strange I think it, it never used to do that when I was younger but it does more now and that it's very uncomfortable when you wake up like that you're sort of lying on your back and your head is kind of twisted over and um mm -hmm. and also I found even if I managed to keep my head straight it didn't do good things to my neck um and I don't know how, how much detail I want to go into that but but basically I think you know Katie Bowman talks about going into it gradually mm -hmm. and and gradually lowering yourself to a, to a point where you're actually lying flat and that being optimal, but not necessarily what you want to go for first off. And for whatever reason, my body is not capable of lying on a flat surface anymore, if mm. it ever was. So yeah, now now we've actually got some, what to me feel like fairly comfy futons, although I, I guess maybe to most people, they're probably quite hard. Mm. And, and we've got memory foam pillows and the good thing about the futons and the tatami mats, aside from the fact that we're kind of sleeping quite flat, is that it's really flexible. So we've always lived in quite small <laughs> spaces, yeah. but we like to use the space for different things. And so it's quite easy, for Rob at least, because he's strong, to lift up the mattress, lean it against the wall, and lift up the tatami mats. And then we've got an entire bedroom kind of free. Whereas with a normal bed, it, once you get your bed in your room, that's where it's staying. So that gives us flexibility, which in the past has been really beneficial. Then you can clean spaces. properly, yeah. you know, which is, is hard when you've got a bed there. Also, we've moved a lot mm. for various reasons, like moved country, moved house, like many, yeah. many times. Hopefully we won't be doing it ever again. Oh, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, having tatami mats and futons makes that unbelievably easier. Yeah, completely. Let's talk about timing. So what time of the day do you get up and is that your ideal or do you like that to change? Um, I mean, it varies. It's earlier in summer because I find I just, when the light comes in through the cracks between the curtains, I just, I automatically wake up. So at the moment I, I'm waking up at like five, five thirty, whether yeah. I want to or not really. Um, and then not long after I, I hop up and get on with the day. It's, and I mean, to be fair, we can't really say that without talking about bedtime either, can we? I mean, we, yeah. we tend to go to actually sleep you know stop about nine nine thirty kind of time yeah and i but i find i mean we'll go to bed maybe slightly earlier maybe quarter of an hour 20 minutes earlier in winter and we'll also probably get up anything up to half an hour an hour earlier i mean i think we just we just sleep longer during winter mm. so it does it varies quite a bit guess up later you mean in winter well, it's, it's partly no we go to bed slightly earlier i think in winter, winter but then but get up later and, in the morning yeah so we get more sleep yeah. time but i think i mean that's partly because we use less we use very little in the way of electric lights i mean half the time we're just using candles um so it just it it means that the 
mornings and the evenings you just you want to go to bed and you, and then you don't want to get up in the morning because it's dark i want to clarify something there first of yeah. all there's loads of stuff that you said i want to pick up on i think it's i've read that it's kind of normal to sleep more in the winter and sleep less in the summer so well, anthropologically yeah. speaking okay yeah and I, I want to just be a bit more accurate half the time we're not using candles we do use candles well, we do, don't we? in we the winter exactly yeah. in the morning and the evenings and um, we'll probably get on to light a bit later on, although it's not on my list. We'll have to add it to the okay. list. Um, but we we use um, blue light blockers in the evening and we have particular light bulbs. And so we get tired when the when the natural light goes. And I think that's something that we've, we want to do because we want to be living as the days and nature is is offering to us and as the seasons are offering to us. And so we're not elongating days by having unnatural lights we're trying to work with what's around us and what's what's giving to us I generally get up really early as well we're both completely morning people um, we go to bed early we get up early which sometimes is hard in the country that we've chosen to live in because Italy is not necessarily get up really late but it's certainly go to bed late and it seems like a few people, well, a fair few people that I've met here just really don't sleep much. And I know there's a range in how many hours each person apparently needs to sleep. I know that it was said that Margaret Thatcher only needed five hours sleep a night. <laughs> I'm just going to keep no quiet comment. on yeah, that subject. Yeah, no comment yeah. to that. Um, but I need eight hours sleep a night. A lot of people that I seem to meet um, sleep less and choose to sleep less, perhaps. Um, and maybe they don't need as much, but that doesn't work for me. So getting up early. I love getting up early because I love the freshness of the mornings in summer. I love the light. I love being able to, to do something and, and perhaps have a few moments of peace before Gabriel gets up, before the world gets up, before things start happening around me. And I really like that way around. And even though we're bucking the trend with kind of what's going on around us socially, it, it is hard. I mean, and I think everyone who's listening, you know, if you, if you take on something that is an ancestral routine that the world has chosen to kind of forget, then when you brush up against the rest of the world, you find that there's conflict, there's difficulties, whether it's, you know, food and children's parties and or food when you're going out or the way you choose to to um, move around or the, the time you get up. So that's not perfect, but we like it like that. So talk about what you do in the morning. I want, I want to talk about your coffee because it's quite special. Okay. Um, oh, I'd like a whole podcast on coffee. We, well, okay. We will do a whole, <laughs> whole podcast. We have an idea of doing a whole podcast on coffee because we've met a grower in which country? Uganda. Uganda. And they do amazing coffee. And we would really like to um, give them a platform to speak about how they grow their coffee. Um, in the meantime, remember what the normal world thinks about coffee, even what the perhaps ancestral world thinks about coffee, even the people who've listened to Ben Greenfield. Explain <laughs> about your coffee. Okay, yeah. I mean, um, my coffee is home roasted. It's, it's bought from directly from a grower, uh, an organic grower, and it's roasted here i tend to roast my coffee lighter than you would generally find in even a sort of a 
home roast cafe or something like that of which there are some definitely a lot lighter than they roast it here in italy the the kind of the the norm here seems to be very very charred bitter kind of but i i mean i don't mind it being roasted a lot i think the problem i have is that most coffee seems to me that it was burnt in the process of roasting it and by that i mean lots of smoke came off it basically and you can taste it and the way that i roast it in a pan i make sure that it doesn't smoke and it's a ridiculous process it you know i mean i can do like enough for like a month but it takes me a couple of hours to do it just sitting there um which in this weather sitting over a cast iron pan is quite interesting no but generally we do something with it it's like you know women working together <laughs> doing something like shucking beans and singing songs together generally we read to each other yeah i mean i can something. i can read while i do it actually i can multitask like that so i can mm. usually entertain gabriel a little bit while i'm doing mm. it um but there is i mean there's a little bit of historical precedent for this isn't there because we did we read in um one of the Mm. Um, ancient manuscripts that you were trawling through a boston cookbook it was yeah okay and they they were talking about the color that the Mm. um coffee came out and they were talking about this sort of light to medium brown color that um that i do so i don't i don't think i'm the only person in history to do it like this they basically described exactly the process that i go through but anyway the the resulting drink is some really somewhere between coffee and tea it's lighter than um you would normally see a coffee being and i tend to make it really quite watery especially in summer because you just you need the water basically so from a dehydrating drink like a sort of an espresso or something it's just it's a really long um hot watery drink talk about why you drink it because i mean i've gone from coffee being the devil when i was a kid and i want you to talk about why you drink it and how it is not like, you know, the other end of the extreme being freeze-dried coffee from a supermarket. You know, I started drinking it, maybe, again, maybe four years ago, and I just started with the sort of packets of ground organic coffee from the um, local shop that, that were nice. Um, but I kind of, I think, yeah, I mean, it was, it was Ben Greenfield who turned me on to the idea that the roasting process is really quite important. And, and if you burn the coffee during the roasting process you produce acrylamides which you're effectively just sort of channeling into your veins every time you mm. you drink it and it it does seem to me that removing that from the process so if you've got organic coffee so there's no pesticides you've roasted it really well um so there's no acrylamides in it the the difference when you drink it is like hmm, okay this the, the negative side effects that one generally associates with coffee the kind of addictiveness um the the loss of sleep um the withdrawal symptoms they become markedly less to the point of non-existent and but so what's the point of drinking it explain why you the drink point it. of drinking it is that i mean i hadn't drunk it for like a decade right and i and i had a cup of it and i suddenly didn't feel depressed anymore i don't know <laughs> <laughs> like it's for me it's an antidepressant i can't really describe it you know my my reaction to being depressed is to struggle and work harder and and that yeah. causes stress around the household and, and and coffee so coffee despite being a stimulant actually me- mellows me because whatever com- combination of compounds that are in it just make me feel fine you, you know? see it's okay. really interesting because coffee is you know a historical drink that people and tribes have used for many many years and as with so many other foodstuffs it's gone from 
what it would have been then, which I don't know, but, you know, the beans and roasted individually, probably, in a household, to freeze-dried in massive factories in a jar, put there, and you just put a spoonful in and pour boiling water. It's the different food stuff. My theory these days is they've done this to especially to the really exciting foods mm. in the world so they, they've mm. done this to chocolate you know when you eat chocolate all you really get is milk solids and sugar yeah. you know when you drink coffee you get some burnt thing that just gives you a jag of caffeine and that's probably got sugar in it as well you know or, or milk again the i think probably the same is true of tobacco i don't i don't think yeah, tobacco grown properly and treated properly and prepared properly is going to have quite the same effect on you as mm. a packet of marlboros you know Oh, did I just mention a brand name? Um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I might have to edit that out. And that's allowed. <laughs> Not particularly picking on any particular brand. But I, I think any... And the alcohol, definitely, they've done that too. I mean, the yeah. beers that Alison makes and, and the, the wines that she makes, they, they have a completely different effect on my body to mm. virtually anything else. It's a, we've, we've found things made locally that have been close, haven't they? And, mm. uh, but... It's, it seems like the further back you go in terms of the techniques, you know, away from industrialization and, and making stuff cheap and addictive in order to sell it, mm. these things have a different effect on your body. But, but the thing is, the number of it is that the thing that you're craving in the coffee, in the tobacco, in the alcohol, in the, I think that's a natural human thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the way that it's prepared is making people ill. Yeah. And I certainly feel like I've found a way with this coffee, a way to prepare it and drink it so that it's beneficial for my health and my psyche rather than detrimental. I think this is really important that, you know, we have we have cravings, we have things we want, and when they might be coffee or chocolate or this, then we think that those things are bad without, you know, because there's only a, a tiny majority, a tiny minority of the population that are making chocolate in any way like it might have been made in the past or making coffee like this. And it, it requires work and um, research and time to create these foodstuffs. You know, making my beer the way I do takes a whole lot longer time than going and buying a beer. But as you said, it's, it's a completely different foodstuff. And in that state, it gives to you, absolutely gives to you. And you can, you can have your cake and eat it, you know? That's, That's what it feels like for me. I've been doing it a few years. I mean, maybe in 10, 20 years' time. I, I mean, I, I got, like I said, I got a lot of my inspiration for this process from the Ben Greenfield's podcast. And, I mean, you've got to put into context, the guy actually does sell coffee, you know. Yeah, so yeah. Um, He talks about mould as well, which yeah, is that yeah. a lot of coffees on the shelves yeah, um, hold true. a mould. And the I, I remember when you first started, you were keen to not have To that. roast it myself, yeah. and therefore there'd be no chance of there being mould there and have yeah. it as fresh as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't drink Rob's coffee. Um, I have had periods during um, his coffee experiments where I've drunk green coffee. And to do that, we have the green beans because without roasting, the, the beans are kind of a grey green. And we've ground them in a serious grinder. Don't try and do it in a normal grinder because you will break it. Um, you should see a picture of this thing. It really is a serious grinder. We've got a serious grinder. And we've ground it and I've boiled those um, coffee beans in water. 
for like 10 minutes and then strained them and drunk them. And I've really come to like the flavour of it. Well, yeah, you um, prefer it to normal coffee, I do, don't you? I do. Um, but that's partly because I don't drink normal coffee. I don't drink normal coffee because I... Robber mice constitutions are very different. And for me, it's always been... It's kind of been hard to accept that I work differently to him and I work differently to other people. And I think for us... I think everyone's an individual with their own past, their own things that were passed on to them when they were in the womb. And my nervous system cannot handle coffee. may not even be the caffeine. It may be some of the other things that are in the coffee. And I can enjoy green coffee, and I have done, but I tend to kind of go on and off it a bit because I'm not sure how much, um, how much I I have negative effects from it. So I've been on, on and off it. At the moment, I'm not drinking it. Um, this morning when I woke up, I had a cup of um, cacao husk tea, which is the shells of the cacao bean, which doesn't have caffeine in it. It has theobromine in which is the more gentle stimulant that um, is contained in chocolate. And so I boiled those for 10 minutes, strained them and drank that. It's absolutely delicious. It doesn't taste like any chocolate tea you would buy in a bag in the shop. It tastes delicious. Sometimes I will put um, some cacao butter or some butter or some coconut oil in it as well. But this morning I just had it plain. So I think um, if people want coffee and like coffee, it's certainly worth exploring a different way of roasting it, finding the beans and roasting it yourself like you'd... Like yeah, you'd. I mean, I think the the thing I haven't gone into detail on is mm. that my symptoms when I drink even organic kind of store-bought or even sort of home-roasted at some cafe or something coffee regularly, I start to... It desensitises me. So mm, my yeah. kind of... My food choices go out the window a bit. So I start mm. eating too much. I start losing energy I, I, I run out of energy late in the day and just and can't function and I just I start needing more of it I start having two coffees a day like really regularly mm. and it just it happens without fail every time mm. and when I go back to this stuff that I roast myself oh, it's just a relief I can just drink it when I fancy it and I it's strange I, I generally don't fancy more than one a day that's the other interesting mm. thing it seems to satisfy me more on some deep, deeper level yeah it's like there's some kind of magic dust that comes with industrial food <laughs> that makes you addictive you know it's I mean, not it, sugar yeah. but there obviously it, it is might sugar, be partly but, you know. the growing as well i mean the growers that we um we're talking about they talk about when to pick the coffee beans when they're actually ripe and mm. now they're a bunch of traditional growers and they say these guys who go to university and learn about it don't necessarily understand how that works and but i don't know anything about that i'm completely ignorant that's why i want to interview them yeah but, yeah no i agree uh, that's why you want to hear them yeah. on the podcast isn't it How do you feel about our food world? Do you want to see change like we do? If so, head over to patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast and help support us to get this work out as far and wide as we can. To say thank you, we've got a host of extra ancestral food material to share with you. You can connect with us more deeply via our Patreon-exclusive podcasts, our after-show chats, our dedicated forum and our ancestral food get-togethers. And there's a library of downloads that will support you in your own kitchen. 
By joining, you'll be really helping us to continue making this podcast and to focus on having a bigger impact, reaching more people, making a greater difference. So we can move together towards the future food world we all want to see. We've got four levels of support to suit different pockets. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Ancestral Kitchen Podcast for all the details. Okay, let's move on because we are really... Um, running late. We're not, we're not running late, but like, this is going to go this on some time. This is what happens when you put me on, I'm sorry. So let's talk about um, showers and breathing in context of having a practice that you would do every day which has an effect on your nervous system, on the way that you face the day. You know, a lot of people will meditate, and a lot of people will do things in their life that um, help them get through the day. And I want you to talk a little bit about Wim Hof and um, the showers and the breathing, because basically Rob's been following Wim Hof for five years, maybe mm, five, six maybe, years. Maybe four. Okay. Maybe four. And um, not pushing. I feel like... I don't know. I will put a link to Wim Hof in the show notes, but Wim Hof is um, a man who is known for being able to tolerate extreme cold and in training himself to do that has been able to manipulate his immune system to resist viruses and has shown that in scientific trials. And he does that through a mix of cold water exposure and breathing. Not only that, Mm. can I add, he Mm. was able to show in a trial that he could train some other people by using his techniques to be more resistant to viruses that were inserted as a challenge to their immune system. So like give him four weeks of training someone and mm. he can improve their their immune system effectively. That that was a really amazing thing. I think, um, can you talk briefly about Wim Hof and then perhaps we will do a more in-depth discussion on the Wim Hof and the breathing for the Patreon because I'm watching the clock and we've got a lot of things to cover. Okay. So just talk briefly about Wim Hof and then we'll do a separate recording where you talk about it a bit more in detail. Okay. Um, Wim Hof is an extreme athlete and adventurer, I suppose you could describe him as. He uh, spent a lot of his time doing kind of stunts for the media, really, um, Mm. in order to kind of gain notoriety. So he did all sorts of things like running a a marathon in a desert and running a marathon on the north pole i think um he spent he held a record for the uh, number of hours spent sitting in ice water at one point i think somebody's broken it now but um but he i mean he's a very spiritual guy and he sort of he used these trials to develop some techniques and i have to say having studied under an awful lot of very good yoga teachers and learn a lot about breathing practices i have never found anything quite as direct and simple as his breathing practices for in terms of how effective they are in changing the way that your body works and maybe we'll go into more detail with that on the patreon feed how many how much time do you spend doing the breathing and the breathing takes about 15 minutes and what about about the cold water exposure the cold water exposure um is I mean it's a shower. Okay, so here in Italy in this weather, a cold shower is actually quite pleasant. It's like oh thank God, something that is not forty degrees for me to touch. You know, um, in winter here, 
people who haven't holidayed in Italy in the winter, because nobody comes here in the winter, do they? They don't know that it gets freezing effing cold. It's horrible. Um, and yeah, then then the shower is like seven or eight degrees or something. And that's, then that's centigrade. Centigrade. Yeah, I have no idea what that is in Fahrenheit. I apologise, but very very cold, like cold lake outside in in winter that's virtually frozen over. You know, um, and the so the practice here varies really quite a lot. And he, you know, his recommendations for it, he says things like a ten minute shower, and I have to be honest like I don't do I don't do a 10 minute freezing mm. cold shower um with it on me the whole time it varies sometimes I've practiced more and I have done but I I am convinced now to keep it up because both of those practices have an incredible effect on my mus- musculoskeletal system I'm a singer right and I need to have relaxed control of the muscles in my body and the, these practices they release tension and we can go more into how yeah. Um, I'll ask you to talk about that more. They they also, as I said, as Alison said, um, they have been proven in studies, well, shown in studies as convincingly as anything you could ever imagine to be very effective at strengthening your immune system, which obviously at a a time like this is is quite topical Mm. and quite important. And um, so I, I do it for that reason as well. Um, although one has to be quite sensitive in how one practices, because of course, if you dunk yourself under a freezing cold shower that's a really good way to get a cold and that's quite interesting because i mean i have tried to engage with wim hof on and off for about five years and i just cannot do it um i find it interesting that different practices work for different people because we all have different nervous systems and different things we need to be taken off of or things we want to nurture and for me, um, I ha- I'm hypermobile and I have had historically lots of problems with muscles and joints in my body. And whenever I put cold water on myself, I end up in pain because some random muscles that kind of a part of my kind of Achilles heel end up tightening up. And I just I've tried it six, seven, eight times with quite a lot of patience and it's not given me um the positive results that it's given Rob. And the breathing I find very intense, kind of doesn't work for me so much, but I've watched what has happened with Rob. It's been amazing how he he literally has been able to control his immune system through it. And I feel like that's frustrating for me because I've not been able to engage with it yet. Um, But I know that my own path is pushing me towards different practices. And so my practices are quite different at the moment. I'm trying to re- reinvigorate a practice of um, yoga mantra into my day singing because I've been a singer. And my practices have more been really about embodiment, not being in my head, moving back into my body and learning to inhabit my body because I think really I left my body when I was about five and just became a set of habits and learning to re-inhabit my body, re-embody my body and also to work with my nervous system and my vagus nerve to um, tone my vagus nerve and calm my nervous system. So we will talk more about practices in that Patreon, I've decided. Um, Let's move on to kind of during the day now. So the first thing I want to talk about is shopping. And we do 
the vast majority of our shopping locally here in that there's a weekly market in our town that we go to and we buy our vegetables and some of our dairy and our soap and um, eggs and things like that there. There's also a local cooperative that have a, um, a kind of a shop down the road where we go and get fruit and veg and some dairy there too. And then we buy in bulk grains and things like that from Italian suppliers. We have consciously tried to get away from supermarkets. Um, and I wondered if you could talk for a few minutes, Rob, just about why we did that and how you feel now when you go back in a supermarket and what your take is on that. Um, I, I have a lot of barely repressed anger around supermarkets and I kind of always have done when when I was a kid I remember it's, it's strange I think it even runs in the family right this is a hereditary <laughs> condition because I remember they, they were going to build a, a Sainsbury's like it's just a up the road UK from the village yeah it's a UK sort of like Walmart whatever I know um and it just up the road from where we lived, we lived in a village with about 5,000 people or something. And we'd, really, supermarkets weren't something that we were used to back in the 80s. Mm. And I, I remember my dad argued bitterly against it with the council and, we, you know, was sort of at, at the head of a group of people who were trying to stop this happening. And I, I remember interviewing one of the local shopkeepers for a kind of a school project, um, just trying and trying to understand really what was going on and it was just this sense of well all of the shops in the village the sort of the connection between you and the person who not even the person who grows the food but the person who knows the person who grows the food you know that it just it's going to go like that that's going to be gone like all the the kind of the personal employment it's just going to turn into muck jobs was the kind of expression around it and I, that that was the sense back then. What I've learned since, and what I've understood since, is the the kind of supply chain that a supermarket has. To me, I think I now believe it's it's virtually incompatible with good health and good management and the environment. Mm. I, I literally feel that now, and and I, I don't I don't want to be like sort of sounding like I'm having a go at everybody who's going to supermarkets because. Believe me, I know exactly how hard it is to find alternatives <laughs> yeah. and fit them into your life. Like, yeah. it really is hard. But you know what? It's important and we all need to try on some level mm. because the the kind of wholesale chain of supply that these supermarkets use, you know, all the apples have got the same damn stickers on them. Mm. They they all come from the same place. The, all the food is grown effectively in monocultures. They've all got external inputs the, the the soil can't survive Fertilize, without extracting mean. from somewhere else and that somewhere else is going to run out of stuff you know it's really so you know just on an environmental level it's absolutely bonkers and there's all sorts of other things to do with biodiversity and just you could go on forever just seeing how bad the the wrong end of the supply chain is but then as well as that you've got the kind of the health aspects of, of this that what you're growing the the difference between some a lettuce that somebody just picked a few hours ago and hands over to you at a local market in comparison to something that got like the extreme of it is it came from the other side of the world you know like i, I remember hearing on some other podcasts there is no question to which the answer is let's ship 
lettuces from Australia, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, and this side of the world. You can understand how it's it's so daft. It really is. And, but the thing is, there's also okay. You say, well, there's organic food in the supermarket. And like, <laughs> a, it's unaffordable. It is so expensive. Whereas if you buy from the people who you actually meet and you know, you cut out all those middlemen, and suddenly this good food becomes affordable. That's the first thing. And secondly, you by buying from somebody who is local, you are looking after your local environment. Mm. If any problems ever occur as a result of the food that you buy from a supermarket in the area where it was grown, you will never know about it. You'll never know anything. There's, there's that disconnect because they're just the, the chain of information is it's never going to be written on the packet what the inputs to the soil were around there, what you know, how they paid their um workers. Like you you can try with labels like fair trade and organic and what have you, but at the end of the day, the only thing that's ever going to solve this is if we all actually have some knowledge and connection. And maybe you know, maybe it's only thirty percent or maybe sixty percent or whatever, and not a hundred percent. But that would make a massive difference to the world and so many problems. It really would. And it's like the sort of the unseen nightmare of our time that, that can, we're creating. I I can tell you how strongly Rob feels about this. I mean, he is the one who's pulled me along to get out of supermarkets and then being out of them for some time and then going back in one. It just gives you such a different perspective. It's like if you you take a food out of your diet and then you go back to it a month later. You know, you, you see what's happening. What I want to do is point people to the episode from last year called Quitting Supermarkets, which is really informative and really supportive and also let people know that um, next month in September we'll be releasing an episode um, about focused on making your kitchen more sustainable which will have a bonus um, of an interview of someone in Australia who was one of the first to kind of um, shout out about supermarkets and talk about how she left supermarkets. So you can hear how strongly Rob feels about that. I, yeah, um, I, mean, I just want to spend the next half hour talking about how supermarkets give you too much choice and how having all that choice has a terrible effect on your state of mind. Well, and, we've talked about I'm that. I'm going to shut up because Alison's <laughs> waving at me. I'm waving at you. I've given you the eye. <laughs> um, we've talked about having too much choice generally in life in the episode with Charlie, the um, ancestral cooking in a van. And it's true in everything that the more choice you have, the more difficult your life becomes. Um, I think I talked to, I don't know if I talked to Andrea with the record button on or not, um, talking about how when I travelled to Russia, I was out in um, the depths of Russia um, far away from any kind of civilization, and then I came back and went into a supermarket in the UK, and I was like, oh, "Hello, what? This is just wrong. All this choice, what's going on?" So it, yeah, it's um, supermarkets are an example of how society is very far away from sanity. I think I want to move on from supermarkets because we've got lots more we want to talk about. So um, let's talk about how shopping is different because we have no car um, and what that means for our shopping, what that means for going out, why we do it and what we use instead. So we, um, Rob has never had a car, that's correct? All right. Yeah, okay. I had a car um, just before I met Rob and then I sold it and that was the last car I had, so that was over 12, 
13 years ago. I haven't really driven for a very long time. And we've lived in places where people said to us, you can't live there without a car. You can't, you can't go to go and live in Cornwall and have a kid and not have a car. Um, and we've kind of orientated our life around not having a car. We've always lived in the train stations. We've changed the way our life is and we've changed what we expect out of being able to move around. So Rob is the strong bodily part of our partnership. So he is able to go to markets and bring home, you know, like four cabbages, a massive bag of kale, a load of fruit and carry it all. But it, we it's do... It's the sp- meat that's really heavy. The meat's heavy. Okay. So he's able to go to Flavia, and, and our the, farmer. And the two litre tins of olive oil as well. Yeah. <laughs> and carry it all home. It does mean we need to spend more time shopping than probably the average person does because we walk places, we collect it, we come back, we go to different places, we get our meat from Flavio, our farm, we get our vegetables from various places. We have to prioritise going and doing it. And I don't know that we necessarily spend that much time doing it, but it takes some sort of planning and organisation to kind of fit it into your week. And also, we both work freelance. I mean, I, I basically work freelance two jobs and mm. Alison does this and we're, we're just our time we have to spend time working but it to some extent it doesn't matter when it is so we can go to the shops when they're open which can be quite random in this that's country, a whole nother episode though isn't yeah, it really yeah. because we have consciously chosen to move our life in that direction yeah. but I think I'm saying this for people who are working mm. a nine-to-five and they're like well how yeah. how in the, well I, what I'm saying is you can't yeah. yeah. Well, I, sometimes I you can. The market in I mean, Penzance it, that we used to go to opened at eight o'clock. So if so you some happen to live there, some people work, could yeah. come before work. So there, there's ways to help it. And there's veg boxes, you know, in the, yeah. in the UK, certainly. Yeah. Um, they're really helpful. Veg schemes where they deliver your veg to you. I would also wanted to just touch on the fact that we have to change our expectations about what we can do and how that is really a positive thing. So if you have a car, you can just go anywhere when you want because you can get in the car. Um, and you don't have a car, you have to walk, which is really good for your body because walking is a fabulous movement for your body. And you don't have a choice. You can't just go, oh, i just get in the car. You don't have a choice. You have to use your body to move around. And also, when there's something that you're kind of not too sure about going to, you, if you can't get there, you can't get there and you have to say no. And I think when we interviewed Nicolette Harm Nyman, for um, the Defending Beef episode, um, she said before COVID happened, the kids had this, then this thing they were doing and they were doing basketball on this day and this on this day. And we were, sh- we were kind of shipping them around left, right and centre every single night and we weren't at home. And we can't do that because we just can't get to places. It might take us two hours to get to a place where it takes someone else 20 minutes to get to. And so we choose not to go to those places. And... Although at the beginning, a bit like the choices thing, all this food, you know, all these things that we can do, you might think that it closes down your life and makes it smaller. What I've experienced is it, that it makes your life much richer because you, you're going more slowly. You have to choose what you actually want to do. And then if you want to go and do it, the journey might take you two hours and you, you're just more conscious and more alive and more there. That that's how I feel about not having a car. Do you feel the same? Yeah. Um I had a conversation with someone a few days ago about this and, and it was just this idea that 
I don't know, if you, if you were driving a camper van around southern Italy or a motorbike or something like that, or if you were driving on a racetrack, you know, that you can imagine situations where driving is like really fun and exhilarating and freeing and that kind of thing. But I think, I, I don't know whether I'm right about this because I don't drive, but I feel like most of the driving that most people do is is basically just dead time. It's like they don't do anything with it, you know, whereas when I'm... I think people listen to us sometimes. Uh, maybe. Well, that's not dead time. No. Um, if... If I'm on a bicycle or I'm running or I'm walking or I'm on a train, it's not dead time. On a train, I can I spend most of my time reading comics to my son on trains um, when we're traveling. And when we're obviously walking, running, bicycling, you're using your body and, and doing some kind of exercise, you know, and that, that feels positive. Why, why pay for gym membership when you could just make it part of your daily life to be to use your body and do like last, last Saturday I had to the the hill between us and the place that I have to go to collect the meat and also to go to the local co-op that we go to is is really quite serious and I had to do it twice last Saturday because <laughs> they changed the opening hours on one of them and and I by the end of the day I was knackered after lugging all that lot up the hill but and that doesn't happen like every day but it's just it's good for that to be part of our lives and I feel really positive about I that. I think we feel like in the end we would like to move perhaps a bit more remote and there's a big question over transport and I know, you know, if you're living, there are people listening to us who just can't survive without a car because they're living so remotely that they use that car to get supplies to themselves. And It's not without its conflicts yeah, for us, is it? Yeah, for sure. in the end, we would like to move to somewhere that is more remote. And I think there's a conflict over that because we don't want to get a car. Yeah. We shall see what happens. Okay, let's talk about um, eating, the kind of times we eat. We talked a bit about breakfast. Um, so we generally, breakfast is a busy time for us and we tend to eat at different times. Um, when Gable's at home, we will eat lunch and um, dinner together lunch and dinner or dinner and supper, whatever you want to call them. And we generally will eat um, around 12.30 for our kind of midday meal. And that is usually our biggest meal of the day. So if we're home, we will have, generally our meat will be that meal and it will be the largest meal. Whereas I think for a lot of people, the evening meal is their largest meal. We found that it's better to eat, for us, to eat lighter in the evenings and then generally we try to eat early in the evenings. So sometimes we'll be eating by four, sometimes five, sometimes we kind of push it to six if I'm kind of busy recording podcasts or you've been out. Um, and for a long time that worked and I was trying to extend my eating window, my sorry, my fasting window um, to have fasting time. That's changed slightly for me recently in that one of my um, largest challenges around my health is my sleep. And so I've taken on the idea of kind of a more pro-metabolic approach and having something to eat before bed to support my liver. But generally we will eat our bigger, you know, our, our kind of evening meal, about four. Um, we don't always eat the same thing because Rob has a wheat intolerance. And so historically, is, although I don't bake with wheat at all, has problems um, with spelt and other similar wheat grains and that you can't eat them all the time. So he would eat rye more often, whereas I don't get on with rye that well, so I tend to eat spelt. Rob tends to eat more millet and sorghum, kind of lighter grains, whereas I would eat more 
kind of spelt and oats, that kind of thing. Um, I don't eat much fruit. The boys eat a lot of fruit. And we have different tastes as well. I mean, we eat a lot of fruit in summer. We don't, I mean, uh, yeah, that's locally there isn't really very much. You just, you're basically stuck with apples, apples and in the winter. Occasionally, occasionally medlars yeah. um, during the winter. And, and so we, we eat much less fruit during the winter. We, um, we have um, sauerkraut probiotics with every meal and we have water kefir every day. Um, and then if I've made extra kind of like kvass or beer, we'll have that. Um, you kind of know what I eat from talking at the beginning of every podcast. But we um, we don't eat out very much. We've had kind of issues with eating out where there's too much salt, fat's wrong. We just, we feel ill afterwards. We really feel ill. And we've there's a paid couple of money. Places, there's a couple of places in Florence we found where yeah. actually we can eat and just relax and eat what you want to eat and, and enjoy it and then not feel ill afterwards. And I'm so grateful for those yeah. <laughs> those places we found because it, it does seem like sort of 95 out of 100 of the places that one would eat now, ha- having made the journey that we've made, I just I just don't want, want to eat it, let alone pay yeah. the money for it, um, yeah. which is a bit sad, really, because people put a lot of love into this food sometimes, but um, it's not an option yeah, as far as it, I'm it, concerned. That's, it can feel isolating, I think, on the ancestral journey that... The further you go into these things, the more you realise you can't necessarily freely engage with what's around in society. And that's where having supportive family and friends around you and reaching out and listening to podcasts like this can make you feel less alone. What I think is so odd about ancestral food, though, is that it's not like, I mean, we were raw vegan at one point, Mm. right? So when you're raw vegan, you can say to people, oh, I don't eat anything that's cooked. I don't eat any meat. I don't eat any, I don't have dairy. It's, it's really clear, you know. Whereas with this ancestral journey, like I mean, there's a restaurant in Florence where they do wheat-based pizzas and I can eat them just fine. Yeah. <laughs> not from, because um, maybe probably if I had it every day, it wouldn't be too good. But my intolerance is not kicked off by it at all. Because whatever they do with it, they they source it right, they the prepare sourdough. it right, and the local, um, it's yeah. Local, but it's not, you know just because it's sourdough. I, I had some sourdough yeah, bread a few true. weeks ago, and it made me very ill. Yeah, you know, it's like the the details are so important. And when somebody asks you, oh, what you know, you, oh, you can't eat that, can you? It's just a, how long have you got? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And also, I feel like it's society wants to say, oh, you've got an allergy, or you can't eat that, you can't eat that. Well, I can, but I'm can choosing eat, not to. Yeah, I, I can eat anything as long as you source it right and prepare it right and as long as I'm eating it in the right proportions. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's such a long conversation. It's just... Difficult. Yeah. Challenging. So we eat together at the um, wooden table that we have in our house. Our kitchen is absolutely tiny, um, but we love it. And generally I do all the food prep and then Rob washes up. He is the washer-upper. It's funny, I had a job in a cafe once washing up and then it seems like it was kind of a training for my daily <laughs> So he life. knows how busy I've been by how much washing up there is. So, you know, if I've baked two breads like I have this morning, they're just behind me to spelt sourdoughs. Or if I've been experimenting with um, some kind of beer or the food processor's been out because I've made a, a spread with lard, which I did it also this morning. He's like, you've been busy this morning. When I die, I will have spent a lot of years washing up. <laughs> but eating good food. Yeah, that too. Yeah, that too. 
Yeah, because it's, I remember when I met I'm, you. I'm rubbish at making. I remember food, when I met so. you, you were just eating carrots <laughs> out, of the, out of the salad yeah. drawer. You know, Bugs Bunny. Honestly, this is my contribution. I'm not gonna, you know, I'd be wasted doing anything else. This is the best I can do. <laughs> Wash out. Okay, so we are fast running out of time. Let is let's talk now about Wi-Fi, IT, lights, that kind of thing. We have an episode quite far back in the annals of Ancestral Kitchen Podcast about why I gave away my iPhone. And you can go back and listen to that. But what I would say is really a very, very important and very integral part of our lifestyle is that neither of us have smartphones. We have phones that look like they came out of 1980 with no form of apps. 1990. You know. Okay, no. 1990, sorry. Um, <laughs> no apps. You can just text and phone on them. We don't have um, normal computers that we use every day. We have black and white e-ink, as in book reader type screens. So if you imagine a Kindle, but large, no, quite a large Kindle, that is the computers that we use every day. And we use them for everything. I use that for my Instagram I use that for my email, I use that for everything. We do not have Wi-Fi in our house. Rob has set it, something up, I don't know how, um, so that our internet comes by Bluetooth, which has a much less kind of, I don't know, the word's not half-life, but people get the meaning of it, <laughs> something like that. It uses that. less power, um, slower transmission of data. You mm. can't, you know, downloading things takes a little while. Mm. You wouldn't be able to watch Netflix on it, but... But it works, and the the point is like the range on Wi-Fi just covers your entire house, whereas you actually have to be quite near this Bluetooth yeah. thing to use it. And the point about that is that it's using less energy to do that, so there's less radiation coming into our bodies, yeah, day by day. And in addition, we um, this has all come from Rob's sensitivity because he is extremely sensitive to light and things coming into his eye and things coming into his body. In addition, we don't have normal light bulbs, and you know, the kind of energy-saving light bulbs. We have old light bulbs. What are they called? Um, incandescent incandescent light, bulbs. light bulbs. The ones that are illegal now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the whole. We have those. Um, which have a different frequency pattern and don't affect the eyes in the same way. And we use they blue, don't flicker, essentially. We use blue or, light or glasses in the, way, anyway. in the evening to um, cut out that blue light frequency. So this is a whole huge topic and you can go back to that first podcast. There's a Patreon extra where Rob goes into um, the details of the kind of e-ink screens. But what I would say about this is I was very sceptical when Rob was like, I can't use computers. I can't, I can't, this is affecting me. I can't be near this Wi-Fi. I'm wiped by about five o'clock. And he was, he just literally would be. To be fair, the, like the Wi-Fi symptoms mm. i was sitting next to two wi-fi routers for five hours yeah, a day yeah. and that that produced a measurable notice effect noticeable of effect in the state of me so ge generally i don't consider myself sensitive to electromagnetic radiation but because of that fluke of having overexposed yeah. myself i can now see that probably better off staying away from it and you know to any extent that i can hence the the bluetooth yeah, router yeah. that i built i feel like um I was just going to say something then about how I overexposed myself to sugar as a kid and now I yeah, struggle exactly with sugar. That. You know, it's it's kind of a similar thing. Um, I was very sceptical when Rob first said, 
these, this light from this phone affects my eyes. It affects my brain. It affects how I think. It changes my habit patterns. It's like, what? Really? And he would say, I can't have these lights on in the house. It, yeah, it affects my eyes. Going around it, replacing all those light bulbs. You love me for that. It affects my mm-hmm. eyes. It does, you know. Do, and I was like, no, you don't rubbish. What's he talking about? And then I got rid of my iPhone. And oh my gosh, the difference. Not just because of the whole iPhone in, you know, with you all the time, kind of extension to your hand, apps, scrolling all the time. But because of the actual physicality of what that light does to your eyes and to your brain waves. And I don't, I think that science in this is kind of very in its infancy um, showing this. But I mean, both of us have had long discussions about how our society is being now being moulded by the effect that the flicker and the light from screens is having on brainwave patterns. Um, and I just say that my life is completely different. I now know when I go back to a normal screen, I can't look at it for longer than like five minutes without feeling muscles in my eyes doing things that are horrible. And, you know, I we use a normal screen for me to connect with Andrew when we're recording a podcast. And I turn my camera off and I put a tea towel over the screen so I can't see it. And I was really sceptical. I mean, like really sceptical. But I would say that if you're interested, go back and listen to that episode and also um, get on the Patreon and listen to the discussion where Rob talks about the e-ink screens because I feel like this is a another um, part of life where we've just taken what's put out in the world and we've said, no, we, we, we know what effect that has on us, just like normal food. And we are willing to put the time in to change that so we feel better. Yeah, I I think it's a a thing like if you were to take the examples of processed white sugar or processed kind of GM wheat or something like that. And if you take a sample of 10 people and get them to eat it every single day, then probably one of them is going to have problems with it or whatever. And, And some of them may have less problems with it. But I think in in its in themselves they are essentially damaging things when they're produced like that you know junk food eventually damages your health and i think that phone screens especially and to a lesser extent tablet pc screens and computer screens and tv screens are basically just damaging people's eyesight and health and their ability to think and some people have a lot more resilience to it than i do i mean i i used up my resilience as a child i i was a little geek and I just sat there programming stuff Mm. like I literally I learned to type before I learned to write so I used up my resilience to it Mm. but other people are in the process of still (laughs) of using up their resilience right now and I think anyone who's serious about their health and their journey to finding some kind of connection with this ancestral lifestyle that we all romanticize possibly that's not the best thing way to look at it, but um, it's 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 finding some sort of compromise between we need these computers. Yeah, how can we use them in a way that is not detrimental to our health? Yeah, mm. yeah, I agree. Okay, um, so we kind of talked about the lights and and the evening for us and how we use incandescent light bulbs and we're using blue light glasses and 
we really try to align ourselves with what's happening outside in the sky. Well, we sun. don't need any of this in in the summer because it's light. We, we don't, yeah, we literally we just got the light bulb out last night because we had a late night actually. So, it, but normally we don't stay up late enough for it to get dark. Yeah. And, so after dinner, yeah. we Rob does the washing up. Thank you, Rob, for that. Yeah. <laughs> Again, and then um, we try to do things together. Really, there is no interaction with any computers after dinner unless it's an emergency, and then we read. Basically, that, that's our after-dinner time. Sometimes we sit and talk. As Gable's getting older, sometimes he wants to go off and listen to... Sometimes we draw something. Or play sometimes we draw, yeah. But basically, our, our mainstay in the evening is reading. And it's really important for me to have a downtime routine in order to optimise my sleep. So, you know, in the past, I had... I would go in and I'd say, oh, just check my email at like, you know, half past six, seven o'clock. And I'd go into a spin... And then that was it. I'd still be awake at two o'clock in the morning. And so I've learned through <laughs> trial and error and messing up that I cannot do that. I have to close things down. And that evening time has become so wonderful for our family. It's a time where we, we read together and we, we get immersed in stories. It's very special when the three of us can share a story. Mm. I mean, I, I've shared stories with both of you individually, but the last couple of last few years really more and more we've managed to share stories the three of us mm. and it is it reminds me like when I was a child I, I grew up an only child so the three of us used to share tv programs together mm. um, and it was lovely to share you know to have some kind of shared entertainment experience but I can tell you it's so much more intimate and so much more personal when one of you is actually reading the text and like doing yeah. the voices of the characters and and you can stop stop them part way through and start talking about it together yeah. if, if you fancy or it just yeah it's, it's a lovely experience it really is I think I'd like to kind of pull us to a close of it now and we're going to go over to the Patreon and we're going to carry on talking about the kind of the routines like the, the Wim Hof and the showers and the things that um, we've engaged in to help us be the best versions of ourselves. and I kind of wanted to close talking about why we're doing all of this so for me you know, part of it is it feels like this is my journey because I was overweight as a child. I went through what I went through and then I turned away from from that. I turned away from the way that I was eating. I turned away from the way that my family of origin were living their life. I turned away from the job at Microsoft and I started to try to do the things that I loved and I think that's the key to both of our kind of stories. And you know why you drink the coffee, why we don't have a car, why we eat the way we do is because we've identified things in us that we want to express and we want to be able to support and do that. We want to be able to have a lovely family. I want to be able to express beauty where I can, take photos. I want to be able to play in the kitchen. I want to be able to paint I want to be in my garden. And for you, you've got that even more strongly than me. Just briefly talk about what's your why. Well, yeah, I was going to say maybe that's that's another subject for the Patreon feed. Um, mm. I mean, for me, the, the why was always that I grew up with with a small amount of natural talent as a pianist. But what I really wanted to do was to be a singer-songwriter and my, my voice didn't work, um, like really didn't work. You know, some people have a kind of natural voice where they can sing. And my, my natural voice was painful. 
and inconsistent and didn't sound very good. And I really, I started to identify that that was to do with problems in the way that my body was working. And I found by going to a doctor and trying to get them fixed that they weren't trying to fix them. They were trying to stop me being in pain and stop me being inconvenienced by the fact that my body wasn't working. And that frustrated me as an answer. And so I I spent many, many years Mm. looking for solutions that would actually solve the problem. And so here I am now on my island, unable to eat anybody else's food, <laughs> unable to look at anybody's phones but or screens. you can and like, sing. Yeah, I can sing now. You can write music. <laughs> and I think yeah, it, and it's an ongoing journey for both of us. You know, we, we ain't done yet. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. But I think that, that that why is and how it interacts is is so important. I think, I mean, you've got to have a positive reason to do it. Like I think a lot of people get involved in things to do with health and uh, and nutrition and fitness out, out of fear you know they're, they're afraid mm-hmm. of getting more ill and, and it's like that has been the least effective of the most motiv- motivations yeah. that I've had I have had it but the thing that has turned both of our lives into something that we're really quite proud of at the moment is getting excited about something that really matters to you and it's and, and it's challenging and difficult every day and yet it's beautiful at the same time there is an extra on Patreon from my weight loss episode where I talk about why. Really, really digging out what your why is. So go check that out, patrons. You'll be able to find that. We are going to head over now to the Patreon feed and go in a bit more in depth into some of the things. For the moment, let's leave this episode here. Thank you ever so much for giving your time and being with me and just opening the door a little bit into our life. Rob. So can we just clarify for everyone what's going to be on the Patreon feed? Because oh, I'm really excited about it. Let's say some some stuff about um, Wim Hof breathing and showers and kind of generally biohacking, like how to use the tools that this ancestral living gives you to make your routine work a little bit better, you know, to uh, survive the challenges of modern day life. And, and also <laughs> some more stuff about the why and how that interacts with what we're doing here and i will put my feminine side in so don't be scared of the word biohacking <laughs> sorry <laughs> right. okay say goodbye to everyone Rob. thank you very goodbye. much for your time Thanks bye thank you so much for listening we'd love to continue the conversation come find us on instagram andrea's at farm and hearth and allison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.